Right, podcast number four of Muslim Pride. Um, again, attempting to give Muslims more of a voice in the media. A lot of people have said I should record a jingle. Um, so I haven't got one yet, but I am uh, open to suggestions if anyone has an idea of a jingle. I was thinking maybe I should open a podcast and do the call to prayer. Uh, but that might be a bit weird. Um, so yes, any recommendations for Jingle, most welcome. So here we go. It's um, podcast number four. Um, today I've got a very special guest, um, Nafisa. I'll ask you to introduce yourself, Nafisa. Hi, I, I'm Nafi. Um, I work for an adult education charity uh, in Hackney. And in our charity, we support uh, our community by supporting migrant women and refugee women who come to the UK and who are learning about life in the UK, resettling, uh, trying to be part of their new home in the UK. Um, at the same time, I'm also doing research at the Institute of Education, um, looking at social relationships of migrant women who moved to the UK. Um, and as part of my remit as head of uh, Skills for Life curriculum in my work, I also sit on um, the Management Council of Natekla, which is a national association of teachers of English and community languages. And I am also uh, a member of Citizens UK's Hackney branch in Hackney, where we are talking about kind of things like refugee resettlement, amongst other things that I do. Um, also, I um, am part of a committee of the Inclusive Mosque Initiative, and that's how me and Asad met. Right, Nafi. So, um, gosh, you are a very busy person. So I'm very lucky to be speaking to you today. Um, and I think it's absolutely prime to be talking to you given this week's announcement. So it was uh, it was leaked on Sunday, I would say, but then hit the press on Monday that David Cameron um, would like migrant women of British Muslim backgrounds to learn English and is pumping, I think, something like £20 million into this, um, all in the idea that it was going to help integration and, in some respects, um, minimise radicalisation. What a claim, um, all yeah. from learning a language. So um, I guess the question for you that I want to ask um, is, what do you make of this announcement from David Cameron this week? Well, um, as you say, you know, all those things in one. Uh, what a claim. So, I mean, as, as someone who's been an ESOL teacher for, for you know, a while now and working with migrant women, some of whom are British Muslim, um, I guess we welcome the fact that some money is going to be put into uh, ESOL, which is English for Speakers of Other Languages, uh, which is kind of the, the main programme for which people who are settling in the UK and who want to live in the UK learn English. Um, but some of the things that he said, for example, making a relationship between learning English and reducing um, the risk of radicalization, I'm a bit concerned about. Um, I mean, the reality is that funding for ESOL has been systematically cut over the last 10 years. I think I read an article um, in, sorry, I read a press release that's about to be sent to press um, by a group called Action for ESOL, which is a kind of lobbying activist group of um, people championing uh, the cause of you know, ESOL um, around the country. Right. And they estimated that um, over the last 10 years, 160 million pounds had been lost from ESOL departments or you know, uh, funding for ESOL to be delivered. Um, there is another figure 
um, which quotes last year's 45 million cut to a specific programme, which wasn't necessarily for migrant women to learn ESOL, but it was part of a you know a wider ESOL for people who want to work or ESOL for people who are on job seekers benefits, for example. Okay. So I guess 20 million, although it might sound like a large amount, is a really a, a small percentage compared to the loss that we've experienced over the last 10 years. And I guess coming off the back of that, it's no wonder that there are people who aren't able to access ESOL classes. Um, you know, there were there was, again, being part of um, the Action for ESOL network. Uh, I've seen that there are colleges that say that they've got a thousand people in their waiting list. Now, that, those aren't all women, but we know that the large percentage of people looking to learn English are women based on our previous figures. So of those thousands that each college, you know, has, um, you can just imagine how many people aren't able to access English language training. Um, but at the same time, this term integration is has always been a little bit of a little bit of a dirty word. Um, people view it suspiciously because there's kind of a connotation that oh, we want people to behave a certain way, or we're trying to make people do things that we think they should be doing. So even that's kind of problematic. And um, one of the things that our organisation um, has had to do was be really careful about it when we talk about integration, when we talk about integration programmes, we had to be really explicit about what we mean when we say, oh, yeah, we're, we're hope, you know, this is our integration programme. And, and what, do, what does integration mean then? Well, I think, I mean, I have opinions about what integration means, but what, what we do at, in my organisation, it's about supporting people to create social relationships right. and to create support networks around them to um, access their community. And I know that sounds really abstract. It's right, quite difficult. And for some people, it might be, oh, why does someone need help accessing a community? You know, you just go to the community centre and you'll find the community. But actually, it's not so simple in London, especially. And even in other parts of the country, it's not so simple because, you know, it, you, grow it, you grow up into a community. You don't necessarily as easily enter a new group of people or enter something that's already existing. So in my organisation, we focus on um, having welcome clubs where we try and get people from different parts of the community to meet. So we have a programme where we work with corporate partners um, using their corporate social responsibility programme, for example, and then they send volunteers to work with our students. Right. And we bring people from two different worlds together and, you know, the, the feedback is that both groups learn a bit about each other. And it's almost for our particular client group, um, we feel that there's just an increase in knowledge about what life in the UK is like, about what people are like, about what opportunities are out there, what kind of work people do. And there may be similarities in their own culture. But at the same time, there are also large differences that takes more than a textbook or a test to be able to learn. Um, but that all has to be underpinned with knowledge of the language. So for, for us, it goes hand in hand at, at my organisation. Language training doesn't happen in isolation. Um, for us, it's kind of like, well, it's got to happen as part of a wider programme of got it. learning about what it's like, what's life in the UK, what it really means. And, and uh, that must be so interesting. So what what life in the UK really means. So you must have experience of people who come into the classroom who've yep. just moved to England 
Yes. And where do you start? Do you start with the cuisine? Do you start with the weather? Both of which are、uh, great. You, <laughs>、um, but where do you start? We actually have to start with an induction, health and safety. You know, <laughs> yes, you can start with a health and safety form. Very good. But basically, that is a good place to start because for there will be people who who are、uh, familiar with the notion of health and safety. But the、um, because of the, the women we work with primarily don't come from European countries, but come from countries that are other than the European Union and. On top of that, countries where English may not be a first language or even a, a main language spoken,、um, and so for many women from these countries, the notion of health and safety, the way that it's regulated in in the European Union, for example, is is a very foreign thing. So starting with that actually isn't a very bad thing because it's sort of like, well, here you go. This is what、um, living in the UK means: <laughs> the yeah, obsession yeah. with health and safety. <laughs> <laughs>、um, so yeah, the, we begin with that, but also.、Um, A set of,、uh, for lack of a better word, sort of kind of ground rules or expectations. That's、right. probably a better word, expectations, and that's very much to do with equality and diversity. Because, again, for people from you know who've just literally been in the UK for a few weeks,、mm. um, if they've come from a very monocultural country, being in the UK can be quite frightening because. You know, you come across very different people, and for some of our students, not really understanding how how to you know how do you communicate with different people. And for us, it's like, oh, you know, that's silly. You know, I'm not trivialising things. I'm not、mm. trying to kind of、um, present people, you know, as not not knowing how to talk to another person. But there is there is a confidence、uh, and and a fear of the unknown. So we do start with. Some kind of diversity training, and we very much start with everybody's allowed to have an opinion,、um, but the value we have is respecting other people's opinion and knowing when something's an opinion and when something's offensive. Yeah, and that, and but you you need language training for that to happen. So it it goes hand in hand. It's not it doesn't happen in isolation. But just what you said so, before that it's this is not something that is just for British Muslims. Not just for British Muslim women; they're just part of your classroom. There are、Absolutely. others who come to to Britain,、um, and especially in light of the refugee crisis and what's happening over in Syria, I mean, it, it, this is not just a British Muslim problem. No, absolutely, it's not just a British Muslim problem,、um, and I mean it's really difficult because there may be statistics that show. The government that oh disproportionately more British Muslim women are affected by this, but my suspicion is that that's only because、um, it may be that British、um, Muslims who、uh, women who are migrants to the UK form a larger proportion of all migrants from the、uh, countries that aren't European Union and countries that don't speak English as a main language, for example. So therefore, you would expect to see proportionately. That the percentages rise,、mm. in you know, in, in proportion to the number of people, but I don't think that it's fair to say that it's a British Muslim problem. I I don't feel so certainly as as an ESOL teacher and and looking at the makeup of people who form our projects.、Mm. Um, so I and I think that's problematic to label it as that issue because 
as many people have brought up, and I've been really happy looking at kind of responses in the news and the comments that people are making. What about other people who aren't Muslim, who are in the same situation? Um, people who are non-Muslim of different cultures are just as at risk of FGM, for example. That is not a Muslim problem. Mm. Um, they're just they're at, at risk of um, domestic violence. Uh, domestic abuse and controlling behavior yeah um so i think it's for me i find it really worrying that only muslim women are labeled but as uh, as applicable for these classes in this new funding um i i think that that is what i find the most interesting but i don't want to i don't want to talk about all of that in, in a negative light because you could say well this is a it's a good thing and it's highlighting the need for integration but I'm actually more interested about you and and why you do what you do so what's what's your journey been what's led you to become an ESOL teacher and want to help people in such a way it's it's quite funny I was just talking about this with someone um, earlier this evening and I fell into teaching ESOL by accident um, actually I meant to I had trained for and meant to teach business studies to young people but I think the value is the same. It's about supporting people get on in life, realize their potential, flourish, not necessarily just survive. And so having also a background of, well, a dual language background. So I, I speak Malay fluently, um, although it's not called for here. Um, I kind of had a bit of an understanding of how difficult it could be for people who have to navigate different languages. Um, so I guess from there, you know, I, I kind of fell into a role of ESOL teaching, but what I realized was that there was, there was a lot of potential. People have so much potential and they, they, they can, um, they, ha they have an opportunity to aspire to things, but they're so limited. Unfortunately, I think people who come to the UK who don't have strong, good English or have basic skills are often, um, people often assume that their intelligence level is the same as their language level. And that's absolutely not the case. Yeah. And I feel that there's so much talent in the cohort, you know, the, the people that we support that's wasted because they're not supported well enough to learn English. Yeah. But and and it comes down to something as basic as that, the understanding of the English language. And when we were talking yesterday, I was saying to you that, my my parents moved over here but they moved from india and india largely speaks english um a very different type of english that has some um, very nice nuances to it but mm -hmm. it was still a challenge moving in the 70s early, early 80s to england because it, you didn't know all the same words and there were certain words used in supermarkets that were different the pronunciation was different but essentially it allowed people to get by and it allowed people to like you say, my parents especially realize their potential. Um, mm. So I think it's it's so interesting that you've you've done that and you've seen that. And what are the success stories you've seen? So who are the people who've come through your classroom and where have they gone on to? Oh well, there's so many of them. I mean, I bump into um, students of mine who are now teaching in primary schools, um, students who are now working in uh, kind of. A banking field you know it's it's and we have 
students who are now at university. I mean, I had a student, a, a refugee student of mine who had an offer to do a, a PhD in biochemistry or something like that. But her level of English was not good enough to get on that course. And we were lucky enough to have kind of a, a refugee program going on at the time where we were able to support her to do so and support her to apply for kind of the bursaries that she needed. And yeah, that, that was a great feeling to see someone achieve, to see someone get there. Um, but there are also many others who don't, don't always get the support they need to achieve what they could achieve. And when you're working in a charity, you have to try and manage as much as possible with the funding that you get um, and try your best to follow people once you've supported them to progress, for example, to a further education college, which has uh, courses in the vocational field that they're looking at or to support them to move on to a university, for example. Right. Uh, so, it, you know, it, it is tricky. Um, unfortunately, we're, we don't, we're not working with a... Um, infinite amount of money it's very finite mm. and uh, we have to do the best we can and but my belief is that if we support people to build their support networks and their social relationships and this this idea of integration for example um, that's very powerful because the help could come not from an institution like mine or not you know an organization or an institution we all know, I mean, you and me, in life, help comes from the people we know, the friends that we have, apart from our family. Obviously, our family give us a lot of support. But in the absence of that, a lot of us have benefited from having really good friendship relationships that have supported us through really tough times. And I think this is something that a lot of women that we support don't seem to have. Um, they seem to be especially at the beginning, very isolated, not knowing where to go to meet people, for example, um, or not knowing how, because, you know, mm. there may be a poster for a club or a, or, or, or a group, but there's still that first step of going there and hoping that they'll be accepted into the group or not really understanding what the group does, because maybe they don't have groups like that in, in their context, in their own cultural context. Yeah. So that, that raises a question around integration and who's ultimately responsible for it. So I guess let's look at two arguments. On the one hand, you could say it's the individual who's responsible to integrate and they've come over to England, perhaps forced or for a reason um, that they of their choosing. So it's their responsibility to integrate and, and learn the language and find their place in society and on the other hand there's a a expectation from the state or the government to help with integration so where do you see the balance lies because you're right in the middle you're reliant on the state but also you I suppose to some degree you may have or have you ever had a student who comes and it's just hard to allow them to integrate because of their mindset or their mentality I, th I mean of course we've got an example of everything um, but I mean if that that is a difficult question. Where does you know who is responsible? Um, for me, students I see, you know, nobody chooses to come to the UK to stay indoors and you know not go out. 
nobody chooses to just like live in a square mile around their house and, yeah. and just like you know go to the shop come home you know who who chooses that life so i think people who think that oh you know like the announcement with the british muslim women don't want to get involved don't want to learn english i i think that's totally inaccurate and it's very dangerous to present people like that because nobody would choose that life for themselves um the women we support really want to you know support their kids at school they really want to um make friends they want to speak because if you don't speak to someone you know if they don't find someone they can speak to in english language and that's a key part of learning english the practice element um so it, it's difficult as you say we're in the middle um but i feel and from my research i i very much i feel strongly that it's not one sided you know it cannot be the responsibility of a person you know you you can't demonize someone for not becoming integrated because actually it's it, english society if you know if i want to call it that is very difficult to break into do you, do like, you think so yes i do if you don't have the same cultural um activities for example if you don't go to the pub you can find it quite difficult students from um other cultures um who may pick up kind of work in bars for example very very quickly um have a circle of friends mm. but i mean I'm, i mean that that again you know that's just one kind of one example but i think it's very difficult um i there was a study by um a charity called eves which unfortunately i don't think they're doing what they used to do anymore and um that was looking at integration of migrant women um who've come to the uk like uh they so they did this research and one of the things it said you know that was said by participants was that it was very difficult to make friends with um british people right they said that british people were were very polite and nice but they weren't open to accepting them as friends um and i mean yeah this research was of a group and you know it's very i'm sure you know people can dispute it but i think that is true so our organization tries to bring people together by creating kind of a platform and i think that's one way of doing it yeah so we we rely very much on our charity uh a voluntary sector partners to support us and one of the ways we do it is by by doing group volunteering so uh women on our programs will meet another charity learn about what it does and potentially meet their clients in uh maybe a lunch club or a joint activity yeah. and through that get to talk to other people who live in the community that they live in and get, and start making little you know friendships maybe too far you know too far a word but start making relationships yeah and, and start learning about each other absolutely but i want to i want to dig on that a bit more so um the british culture is hard to crack into um mm. i find intriguing so let's go on it's always nicer to talk about personal experience so you're of malaysian heritage um mm-hmm. would you say you feel british i definitely feel british okay yeah. and so how have you managed to crack in and what what's the secret well i would i came back to the uk uh when i was very young I had before I left to go to Malaysia I'd spent some years here um I'd been to a Montessori school okay. so I kind of 
um, I guess I had memory, you know, vague memories of what it was like to live here. Mm. And then when I came back, I very quickly went into education and and got a, you know, a part-time job. So every day I spent with other people, talking to other people, meeting people who were different from me. And therefore, it was much easier for me to um, get involved and, as you say, crack it. But at the same time, even though I lived in Malaysia, culturally, things weren't so different. You know, the systems that we had there was everybody went to a supermarket. Everyone did a weekly shop. Okay. Um, so did they have health and safety as well? Yep. Well, <laughs> not as not as well, not at the level that we have here. Still not, possibly. But, you know, um, we had friends, you know, friendships were really important uh, in, in my, you know, in, in my life in Malaysia and continued to be important when I came to the UK. And I sought to make friends with people. And, you know, I went, I signed up for clubs, I went to a dance club, or, you know, I went to study literature. So all these things were a product of my cultural upbringing, and therefore made it easier for me to, mm. as you say, crack British society. But when I look at uh, um, the, the students we have, or the, you know, the client group we have, I think culturally, they don't come from uh, countries where it is as similar as mm. the UK. Mm. So it can be quite difficult. You know, a dance class might not be um, an activity that they do. Um, right, paying yeah. for one might be even more difficult. They would, obviously, if they could pay for something, they'd probably pay for their English class, not to go to a dance class, you know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I do feel that the cultural differences, coupled with the lack of language skill, makes things a lot harder. And certainly our students say that, you know, their confidence to talk to other people or to to ask questions or to, you know, start conversations, for example, is very low, especially when their language, they perceive their language level to be low. Yeah. So here's, here's one. And we touched upon this when we talked earlier this week, um, is around the role of children for these people. So um, I was cycling along today and I saw an old lady, um, headscarfed old lady, and she was crossing the road with her daughter, and her daughter was much younger than her, so I couldn't tell if she was the mother or the grandmother, and I thought, I wonder what language they speak, and I saw, I, I guess I tried to read the lips of the girl, and, and she was speaking English, and the mother or grandmother was clearly not replying in English. So mm -hmm. what what's the role in, in children of this? So what do you see happens as a parent starts to learn English um, at a rate that's probably slower than their child um, but also does it change the relationship in any way? Um, well it's very difficult for me to generalize because people you know our students have different experiences for some people uh, we've seen you know people become much more confident feel and be and much happier because they're able to support their young children um communicate with teachers well better maybe you know uh, to understand what's going on and through that understand the way um our british school system is mm. because that's another cultural thing that we forget um in other you know in some other countries the responsibility of education is totally handed over to teachers you know pa parents don't have to get involved in homework mm. or practicing things at home with their children for example whereas in the UK there's a lot more involvement expected from parents which I think is a really good thing however it's still something new to learn 
um, some of the women we've supported didn't know that they had to, you know, put their kids down on a waiting list for schools years before that they were meaning to, you know, years before they were intending to join that school or were at an age that they needed to join. Mm. You know, things like that are, again, um, cultural differences that are difficult for people who don't have English, a strong level of English language to access, but also, you know, unless someone who had kids was able to support you, um, you might not naturally know where to find the information either. But anyway, coming back to the, lang the language development and kind of the effect, we do have a lot of students who are almost ashamed to practice English at home with their children, even though it actually would be beneficial for them. And, you know, it, I think you forget that as a parent, you're supposed to be guiding your child, for example, you know, maybe not necessarily having power over your child, even though, you know, in some some people think that that's the case. But, you know, you're supposed to be the person that your child looks up to, to, to learn and to support them. Mm. But if you don't have, you know, a level of English language that can support your child in their school development, that can often change the dynamic. And we have had some women um, talk to us about how that, you know, is, is, a, is a really upsetting thing for them and uh, can often, you know, make dif have create difficulties for them and their child bonding. But as I said, I can't really generalise that across everyone. Yeah, as much as I would like you to to create lovely um, soundbite or something. So I, I get Absolutely. I get what you're saying. I think it's it is so interesting because this integration happens on so many different levels. It's not just integration into society and into Britain, but then it's also integration of a whole new generation of people. And I personally feel very lucky to feel so integrated into British society um, because of the work and what was available to my parents um, and the yeah. people around them at that time. And I think it was a very different environment. So looking at the context of ISIS today and the view of Islam, I think it, it's very hard for people, especially to bring up children. Um, and I've spoken to Zia Chowdhury back at the very first podcast, uh, and he wrote yeah. about that in The Guardian, that he's scared for his children. Now, English isn't even an issue there but if you take it to a level of even language is so difficult um, and now there's it's in the news and it it's good it's in the news you could say like it's led us to have this chat today yeah. and it will have an impact on your work um, I, and actually what what kind of impact do you think this announcement will mean for you generally so it's not coming in until October um, but what do you think this is going to mean for the for ESOL in general? Um, well, one of the, you're right. I mean, you know, good things come out, bad things, bad things come up, good things. Um, so this has really put ESOL in the spotlight. And some of the, like I was talking about one of the organizations, Natekla, we've been trying to push for a ESOL, an ESOL strategy for England, as they have in Scotland and Wales, um, because we feel that it should be seen as a separate, crucial, you know, kind of area of funding, not just put together with vocational training and further education funding um, simply because of how wide-ranging the the impact of language learning is um, 
But I guess for us in my organisation, we, we, we'll wait and see what this funding looks like. I'm not, I, I can't really comment on what I think it will do. But what it's done now so far is is definitely put ESOL into the spotlight and made people question why there have been cuts to date um, and, you know, what can we do? What mm. more can be done? Um, so, yeah, I think for now we'll just have to wait and see what that funding looks like, to be honest. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And, hope, and, you know, hope that uh, the government consults with ESOL professionals when they're thinking about how to allocate the funding and talks to organizations that work with people. Um, but one thing that I think is problematic is that they think that through putting this money towards Muslim women learning English, these women will be integrated and we're going to minimize the risk of radicalization of their family members and I think that's worrying I I can't see how we could show that as an outcome wow okay so Nafi I tried to keep these to half an hour but you've you've just opened up something that I think we have to explore a little bit further so you you think that teaching English to British Muslim women it will not have an impact on radicalization I'm not saying it will not have an impact on radicalization, but I am saying that it's very difficult to um, put those two together. I, I, we'd have, I'd have to see, you know, what the research is. Mm. I mean, I, it's very, it's, it's so difficult because, as I mean, the the Muslim women thing itself was a very sweeping statement. When I can say that many people, you know. M- Many types of women, not yeah. just Muslim women, need English language support, need to be supported so that they can feel part of their community. Um, and then f- layering on top of that, this risk of radicalization um, and relating it directly with learning English language is a really, really difficult, uh, I think, a, a tenuous link. Mm. And um, so I can't say yes or no, because I wouldn't be able to say, you know, I wouldn't be able to say I don't have the research in front of me and I'd like to see where, where the research you know where the background to that claim is mm. um, what I do know is that you know women need apart from needing to feel part of their community um, need to be supported with skills they need to be empowered and um, so for example one of the things that women that we support talk about is the fact that they don't have digital literacy skills they're they're not they don't know what's online they don't know you know how to access videos that maybe their children are watching they they have no idea about how to not I mean control is a hard word but to kind of look out for online safety for example of their children Mm. so that's something that we're responding to by building in digital literacy into all our classes we we do a lot of mobile phone smartphone kind of learning when we work with the women we work with yeah now whether that will have an impact on the radicalization of someone in their family i can't make that link but all i know is that i'm empowering that woman to be able to know more about the lives of her family members yeah, well, you could argue that it will have as much an impact, if not more, because 
um, the research is showing that people become more radical or fundamentalist through the internet and um, the work that's being done on digitalization of terrorism um, mm-hmm. should go side by side with that. So what are the signs that someone you know um, or someone in your family, even that could happen, is mm-hmm. using the internet for terrorist means? Um so yeah, I, th- I think that that sounds fantastic in what you're doing, and that's probably another area that should be looked at because it's not it's not regulated in any way. Absolutely. Um, and I, I'm just it's so hard to put it together to say well English is just one part of the problem of radicalization and is what is making the headlines. Absolutely. Um, and it and it's being placed all on British Muslim women, whereas actually it could be British Muslim men as well. Um, and it could be Muslim men, not just British Muslim. That's where I get so stuck in this whole story, um, because like you say, ESOL has had its funding cut, so should it not be that ESOL has just had funding upped for so many different reasons? Absolutely, um, but I, I don't know if that was what the government intended. Uh, and that's why it's not ESOL because we have had so much funding cut, and the the fact that ESOL is now in the spotlight is only a good thing for yeah. our profession for the students that we support. Um, but at the same time, you know, I would argue that online literacy is just as imp- you know, if you want to go down that route, actually, I would say that online literacy, or sorry, digital literacy, or, or you know, knowing how to navigate um, kind of search engines and um, working on understanding what websites are and that kind of thing uh, is maybe more important than English language if that's what the government's trying to look for if they if they're trying to find a way of um minimizing the risk of radicalization then yes. is it not you know just as important um to put money into digital literacy classes yeah okay and, yeah. yeah so okay we've we've gone on so i don't want to um, I don't want to go on too much longer because you sound like a very busy person, Nafi. So the final question I'm going to ask you that I ask everyone is, what's the one piece of advice that you would give to Muslims today? I think this is a really difficult question. And the one thing that I would say is that I don't feel that I am in a position of authority to give advice to Muslims. Um but hey, I, you're a Muslim. That's enough authority to talk. I know, I know, but I'm also very, I'm also a very humble. I'm, a, I'm a humble Muslim. I don't purport that I'm a, you know, a good Muslim in that sense. I just do the best I can. So I guess you know what I would say to other people is, for them to do the best they can, um, just like me, um, and for them not to be afraid to question. Question everything. Question everything. Nice. Question everything. Okay. Um, so, Nafi, thank you so much for giving me half an hour or now 40 minutes of your time. Um, where should people head to if they want to find out more about the work you're doing or where would you recommend people to go to either follow what you're doing or one of the organisations that you're associated with? Well, I think they could go um, at, to a website um, called Action for ESOL. Action for ESOL. Um, I think it's just actionforesoul.org.uk. 
I think, but if you just type it into a Google search engine, it will come up. Um, and that, as I said, is an organization that um, is kind of an activist for championing the cause of ESOL and the students that we support. Um, and I think there is a demonstration planned on Wednesday, the 27th of February, uh-huh. um, uh, and which is kind of asking the government to recognise that, you know, all people need English language, for example, and not single different groups of people out. So, yeah, please do take a look there. Um, also, our profession, natekla.org.uk, mm-hmm. N-A-T-E-C-L-A, uh, for anyone who's interested in kind of the, the membership body for ESOL teachers. Um, yeah, and my organisation is elat.org.uk, ELAT Connected Learning. Um, and yeah, you can take a look at what we do and the kind of programs that we have to support people who are resettling or just settling in the UK. Jolly good. So if you know a British Muslim or other needing some English uh, training, then that's where you should head to. So Nafi, thank you so much. Uh, and there we go. Episode number four. Another one next week. Thanks so much. Cheers. <laughs>